All right. So, yes, I can hear you. Hey, hey, Catherine. How's it going? Um, good. I've just been sitting, waiting to be led into the meeting in Microsoft no. Teams. So, <laughs> apologize. I've been like, waiting, and it's like, when the meeting starts, we'll let people. I'm like, good, good. And then I was like, I wonder if I did something wrong. So, I, anyway, super apologies. Um, no, no. Way it automatically saved on my Google Calendar. So, anyway. Oh, gotcha. <laughs> Well, look, no worries. Uh, what I heard is that when you're a decent enough person, we will wait. And I was definitely happy to. Uh, and you just saved me. I don't know if you just saw the comment there. Brenda Miller is like, hey, just tell us about your day. And that was going to be so boring. Uh, people oh. were going to start dropping off. It was going to be bad. <laughs> Thanks, Brenda. <laughs> so uh, welcome, Catherine. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, even though you guys should all know, because I'm guessing you're RSVP. This is Katherine Sanderson. She is Dr. Katherine Sanderson. She is the author of several of my favorite books, um, Positive Psychology and um, uh, the the newer one. Um, uh, give me the name. Why We me. Act. Why We Why Act. We act. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm always remembering uh, the moral bystanders. And, uh, so, uh, so before we jump into me just flooding you with questions, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, we will start from there. Well, so let's see, I'm a professor. I mean, that's like my, you know, day job with health insurance or whatever. Um, but but I will say what my passion is for, and, and Kelly, why I've been so looking forward to this opportunity for you and I to connect more, yes. is that what I love is psychology and sharing it with people. Because the reality is, of course, you know, my teaching is wasted on the young. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean, though, right? I do. I like, do. Yeah. On the test. Wait, wait, do I have to know this? And right. so, um, when you gave me the opportunity to talk, I was like, well, this is great because this is like people who actually are not going to ask me if this is on the test. Um, they're just interested in learning about psychology. So anyway, that was that's a little introduction to me. So so uh, I want to I want to kind of jump into why it was super important and super interesting to have you on. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about, um, I, I, I'm, I'm going to put you on the spot first. How, how I'm going to say that you're an expert in the field of positive psychology. What, what are you going to say to that? I mean, I will say that I write and talk and teach a lot about positive psychology. I'm going to be clear that that what I'm doing is I'm describing other people's research. So uh -huh. people often are like, well, you know, when 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 this study or this study or and I'm seeing Laurie is asking, it'll be. Uh -huh. <laughs> That's why I like talking to adults, right? That's right. why I like talking to adults because they're just like, I want to hear because I want to learn. Um, so I, I will say I know a lot about positive psychology. I, I will say that. Yes. Okay. So this is our expert on positive psychology, right? <laughs> so, so can can you can you explain the field and explain why it's uh, such a big thing? Yeah, love that question. Thank you. Uh, so for years, and for those of you who took, um, you know, intro to psych way back when, whatever, you probably remember that the field of psychology is all about like neuroses and depression and phobias and mm -hmm. problems and right i mean that's mm -hmm. what that's what i learned that's mm -hmm. what so many people learn about psychology and about 20 years ago or so now there was a new movement within the field of psychology which was the so-called movement of positive psychology mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. it's hot now and it's new but in reality in the scheme of psychology it's super new it, because mm -hmm. psychology focused on the bad. And it's mm -hmm. a wonderful new field because really what it focuses on is the happy, <laughs> the good. Right. And, and that could be, you know, feeling gratitude. Um, yep. That could be feeling love. It could be feeling mm -hmm. connection. Um, and so it's it's actually a really wonderful, exciting new part of psychology, especially for people who, as somebody just noted, minored in psychology, uh -huh. in psychology classes. But this is new. This is new unless you've got like young people, really young people on this. Um, this is newer than a lot of people, you know, learned about when they learned about psychology. Right. Now, my introduction to it, uh, I was actually at work probably a couple years ago, and uh, someone brought it up, and I was like, wait, I've never heard of this. Now, I've heard all about abnormal psychology, and I've heard all about all the negative things in psychology, and I was like, oh, wow, this is, uh, 
this is new. This is interesting. And uh, I, I read probably three books before I got to yours. And there was uh, something so natural and gratifying about having you uh, ha- having your book because it was, I mean, granted, yes, you're talking about other people's research and that sort of thing. Your breakdown was so human and so relatable that I immediately like fell into it. Like, oh, this is the best thing since sliced bread. I was like, this is awesome. So uh, when I read the book, I was like, yeah, this is obviously what I'm going to spend the rest of my life doing. <laughs> and, uh, and and as a coach, um, we're, we're choosing which way we kind of help people uh, move forward. And uh, it, there has been nothing better than helping people move forward and see these positive, like, upside sort of things. Um, so can you tell us some of the tenets of positive psychology that may break from the norms of what we've learned in uh, our everyday working of, like, negative and abnormal psychology? <laughs> yes. Good Good question. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that many people go through the world sort of thinking like, well, you know, some people are happy, some people are not, or some people mm-hmm. are positive and some people are not, you know, et cetera. And well, you know, I'm not going to be happy if, you know, I didn't have these things happen. If I'm not, you know, wealthy or if I'm not married or if I'm mm-hmm. not, whatever, mm-hmm. genetically blessed. Right. And what I like most, in all honesty, about the field of positive psychology is that I think it's very hopeful. <laughs> that I think it's very hopeful. And and Kelly, you were very nice, I think, and very, I'm going to say diplomatic, um, <laughs> about um, describing my book. Because here's the reality of my book. My book kind of talks about how I'm a mess. So the book, <laughs> it does, though. You know, you know what I mean. The book talks about how I don't naturally and easily find happiness. And so- mm-hmm. What I like about the book is it's basically saying, if you don't naturally find the silver lining, if you don't naturally, if you, you know, and hey, listen, mm-hmm. I'm very good at finding the opposite of the silver lining, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good at, you know, ruminating and being negative. Um, and, and the book is very much about like, you can do something. And so yeah. what I like about the field is that it's hopeful, that it's saying, yeah, yeah. there are some yeah. people who are sort of genetically blessed and that they naturally find that silver lining. And, and if you're one of those people, that's awesome. But this book is actually not for those people. Right. <laughs> this book is kind of like, you know, as I say to people, if, if, you, if that's you, you don't really need to, to read the book because you're already doing it. I mean, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. affirmation of how great you are, but you don't need it. And the book right. is really about, about helping people who don't naturally find that. And that's, you know, that's, right. that, that's what I have loved about it. That periodically, well, I mean, like you and I, Kelly, you know, just are connecting. I had somebody like tweet about the book a, a couple of weeks ago. And I was like, I don't know the person, complete stranger. And I was like, that was my whole goal in writing it was that people, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, wait, I can do something. And, you know, as I describe, we are all better off if there's more happiness in the world, right? We are all better off if I'm better off. It's beautiful. Yeah. Right. We're all better off. It it feels, it feels, um, it, it feels like appropriate for the times also like i know uh why we act is probably even more appropriate for the times but uh when i think about positive psychology and there's this sense of um kind of like you said like there's a sense of empowerment that comes with the idea that i can actually do some things to improve my my level of happiness uh i remember one of the things that uh, i was most fascinated with was the myth of money right so can can you talk a little bit about that? I, I I think it's probably something that we're realizing more and more. But can you talk a little bit about about the myth of money itself? Yeah, that that's really a great one, and that's one of the ones I think that we fall prey to the most. And that mm-hmm. is this idea that well, if you have more money, then surely you would be happier. And right. so therefore, what you got to do, you just got to get more money and more money and more money, and then you'll be happier. And mm-hmm. I, you know, to me, that's one of the most important lessons is that. There's a wonderful expression, again, by someone else that's called the hedonic treadmill. And the idea, Mm -hmm. of course, is that you just keep walking and walking and you never reach your destination because we can all think about times, you know, younger in which we're like, oh, Mm -hmm. if if somebody was giving me $20, that would have been, you know, really helpful. And then you get, you know, a raise and you're a little bit, you know, have a little bit more money and all of a sudden you're like, well, now if I just had a little bit more money like that person. And, And 
And that's, I think, the challenge of this sort of comparison. And and although you ask about the myth of money, and, and that's sort of a key, I think this myth about comparison can actually be about uh, lots of different things, right? It can be like, yeah. if I just looked like that, if I just lost 10 pounds, then, then I would yeah. be so happy. You know, if that's I right. just, you know, whatever, if I just bought a house, if I just got a promotion, if I just had my book get published, you know, whatever uh-huh. it is, if this thing happens, then I would be happy forever. And so all of those are myths that were mm-hmm. changed. And and sort of having that recognition of wait, that actually is not going to make me happy is really important. Oh, so I I talked to a young lady today and she said, hey, I am going to be the next Oprah, uh, and, and honestly, just very successful young lady. And 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 she's talking in me and she's telling me all about these goals and dreams. And, and obviously, the, these are all good things in and of themselves. But one of the things that I thought was really interesting was that there's this uh, sort of constant sort of comparison to uh, where someone else is or what she should be or what she could be. Um, for those people who are those type A's, those people who are very driven, wh- what what should they be looking at and, and where's the line? You know, it's like, it's obviously it's okay to reach out for things, but where where's the line? Yeah, so really important question. So I'd say a couple things. I'd say one, thinking about internal motivation versus external motivation. So sometimes people are saying like, well, I really want this. And then they don't really know why they want it, right? They, they don't really know why they want it. Um, I had this um, interesting conversation Ooh, about a month ago with a student of mine uh, and who was a very smart student, graduated maybe about five years ago. She asked me to write her a letter of recommendation to attend a doctoral program in psychology. Mm-hmm. I said, you know, I'm totally glad you're right. And I think you'd be a great candidate. And then I said, why do you want to get a doctorate mm-hmm. in psychology? And she goes, well, I just really want to help people. And I said, well, <laughs> do you know that like a doctorate is about like, you're just going to do research. And she was like, no. And I was like, wow. yeah, that's what you would be doing. I'm like, so if you like that, that's great. But if you wouldn't, then maybe you want to think about a master's in social work. Or you want to think about becoming a therapist. You want to think a different kind of thing. And she was like, oh yeah, that's what I want to do. And it was so interesting because her assumption was in order to do this thing, she needed this degree. She needed wow. this degree. And again, PhD is a great program for some people um, who really, you know, like doing research and, and, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of the science. For right. other people, it's like hideous. And so I yeah. think it's also really important to think about what's driving you. You know, are you motivated because you internally are like, this is going to be awesome? Or is it the, you know, I want to be Oprah because I want to be famous or mm-hmm. I want to be wealthy or I want to mm-hmm. be you know, whatever the, the woman who you spoke with today. Mm-hmm. And so I think part of the, the real question is there, there can be internal drives um, mm-hmm. that's different than if it's an external drive. Okay, so now that's an interesting piece because a lot of us are going to uh, assume that, yes, I'm driven by my mission, Um, but there can obviously be some other things involved. There can be um, some limiting beliefs. There can be some things from the past. Uh, How do you know which thing, and there may not be a short answer to this, but uh, whatever you can give, how do you know where your drive, where your motivation is coming from? Yeah, so I'm going to give it a, a really nerdy example of myself. I remember being in graduate school a long time ago, and I would be at a movie um, back when you used to like go to a movie theater and sit with people. Right, but, right. Um, and I would be thinking, I can't wait for the movie to end so I can go home and write. <laughs> 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 right. On a Saturday night, like it was so. I was so. Oh wow! Yep. Like, I loved that. You know, I yeah. loved it. It was super rewarding. Um, and 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 then I had friends who were just kind of like, "This is a slog. Like, this is kind of awful." And so I'm yeah. giving that as an example. But again, I think there's lots of different things. So I will say, and he's not officially listening, but my husband, um, is a lawyer, and and if you ask him if he could do anything he wanted he would be a basketball coach, um, yeah. a women's high school basketball coach. Uh, I'm sorry, women's college basketball coach to be very specific. And so there's an example in which like, you know, he's a lawyer. He does not want to be a lawyer. You know, mm-hmm. he would very much like to be a women's basketball coach. And he's, you know, fully aware of that. And so I think part yeah. of it is to sort of say, if you could get rid of the, the pressure and the society and the money and the whatever, wh- what do you love? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, um, Kelly, I'm sorry. I'm going to interrupt for a second. Yes. What do you love? <laughs> um, I love bringing. I love fixing things. I love bringing this sense of balance. Mm-hmm. I love uh, the idea of growing something. 
So uh, this is for me kind of apparent in all the different parts of my life. Like I love gardening. I love uh, I love fixing people. I love fixing people uh, in the sense that I love having people air out what's going on and become like really conscious of themselves. I believe that that's enlightenment. And I am so internally attracted to that that specific selfish high of getting to know uh, of getting to know that someone gets to know themselves. So, and that's what you're doing, yeah. what you're doing right? See, that's the thing is yeah. that's what you're doing. Like you're not doing it to be the next Oprah or whatever, you know, or sure, whatever, sure. right? Like what you just described is you doing what you love, right? Yep, yep. And now here's the thing that that I do worry about though, because now I'm doing this, I'm doing life coaching, and I'm going to call it loosely life coaching, but really it's all about. Um, it's really more of a holistic coaching where we're talking about everything. So not just success, not just life. What I started off doing was business coaching. And I went into business coaching specifically because I went to Accenture and I said, hey, um, if you were going to help me start my business, what would I need to do? And they'd say, well, you need to net at least $10 million a year. And I'm like, well, no, not quite there. And I saw that there was a niche available. There was a need there. And I went right into it because I saw money. <laughs> and um, initially, yeah, I wanted to help people. And, and I actually did help uh, small businesses. But the reality is that I had no idea that my love had nothing to do with money. Like I'm not, I'm not very money driven. Uh, I keep my day job so that I can coach for free if I decide to, or mm -hmm. I can charge whatever I want to without having to have the pressure of mm -hmm. saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to charge you this much because I need to make rent, uh, that sort of thing. So my worry is that when we, when, when, as people, how easy is it for us to identify what we love for real and, and what's blocking us if there, if there's that, uh, if there's such a thing? Yeah. So, so I think sometimes what's blocking people is the voice from others around them, right? Uh -huh. If I do this, you know, what will my, what will my dad say? Or, you know, or what will my spouse say? Or what will, you know, again, will, will, you know, will that be kind of embarrassing? Or will that mm -hmm. be kind of, you know, whatever, less prestigious or less, you know, famous or whatever. So yep. I think sometimes, you know, that sort of voice is blocking us. And I think, you know, trying to sort of separate, um, and, and this is something that I talk a lot about, not as a life coach, but I talk about it a mm -hmm. lot as an advisor with my students is that people will come in and yep. say, I really want to major in econ. And I'll be like, okay, great. Why? Because I want to make a lot of money. And I'll be right. like, well, you know, I mean, again, it's not, you know, you know, and 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 I will say that you know, time and time again, when I'm having conversations with students, what I'm trying to do is get them to figure out what they love. Um, I remember yeah. a student a few years ago who was pre med, and she was doing horribly. Like she was really doing horrible. Mm all of her internet classes. And I, and I said to her, you know, I mean, we can get you a tutor, we can do this or that, but you know, do you really like these classes? And she was like, no. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you and she goes, well, I want to be a doctor and I have to take these classes. And after kind of working with her for about a month and kind of getting to know her, I finally sat down and I said, listen, I'm like, we can do this and you can be, become a doctor. We can do it. I'm like, but here's the thing. There are a ton of different ways to help people, you know, in that you could do without being a doctor. There are lots of different ways to help people make a difference that are not that. And yep. and you might like some of them more and be better at it. And and she didn't say anything and she left my office and I didn't hear from her about two days. And I sort of thought, oh, I've, I've overstepped. And then she shows up outside my office one day and she looks at me and she goes, I'm going to be a history major. And she just had this like <laughs> light and expression on her I face. I love it. And, but it was an example of, you know, being a doctor is a great thing. And, and I'm sure that there are lots of people who do it and, and it makes them very mm -hmm, happy. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing it because you're like, that's going to be my path to, you know, being rich, that's, you know, you only live once. And that's, yep, yep. you know, this is not the dress rehearsal, right? This is like your life. And, um, and so to me, I think trying to separate do I want this thing because I want it or do I want it because other people around me or yes. society wants it? And I, and I think people vary to how much they can listen to different voices. Now, I, I think that's really interesting because I was on, um, 
I used to work at a place that consolidated student loans. And I remember uh, meeting a young lady. Uh, she had gone into a doctorate program. She had about maybe $200,000 in student loan debt. And she realized she didn't want to be a doctor. Um, and yeah, <laughs> so she had no degree, $200,000 in debt. And she was, she was, she was, uh, she was in a really bad place because she's saying, hey, I'm almost suicidal here because I have nowhere to go. And I, I always go back to that when I think about, I wish there was some way to have connected with her on a level uh, where I could say, hey, let's, let's, let's get you some help as far as like finding out your path. So uh, for me, it, it is very near and dear to my heart. And I do appreciate so much you kind of giving us a layout of what that looks like. So for everyone who's listening, watching you guys, uh, Catherine has laid down some foundational pieces for us. Um, so now I want to move into something else is I, I want to say near and dear, which is this idea of, well, for me, it's all about human responsibility and that sort of thing. But for you, uh, you wrote uh, the book, uh, Why We Act. And I want to, can, can you describe to us what, what you say the book is about? So as we've discussed so far, Kelly, you know, I, I have focused on positive psychology and that's what I, you know, teach and write about. And about three years ago, my oldest child started college and in his first two weeks, he called me late one night and said, mom, a student died in my dorm today. Mm -hmm. And, and it was a story that even if you don't know, you know, this college, this kid, whatever, it's a story you've heard. Mm -hmm. He was drunk, he fell and hit his head, and his friends watched over him. They strapped a backpack to his shoulders to keep him from rolling onto his back and vomiting and choking to death. They checked to make sure he was still breathing. They put him in bed. But what they didn't do for 19 hours was call 911. Wow. And when they finally called, it was too late. The, the kid's family flew in from out of town. They were with him when the hospital disconnected him from life support. But... When I heard that story, I was just, you know, I was struck as a mom. I was struck as a professor, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. how many ways that could have gone differently. So that was actually the prompt for this book, Why We Act. Now, I've just told that story, you know, and, and that story is very familiar. You know, people hear about fraternity hazing and so on. Yeah. But, you know, I wrote that. I, I started writing this book, this book proposal. And then about a year after that, the Harvey Weinstein thing came out where it was clear that many, many, many people had known what he was doing for mm -hmm. that period of time. Um, the grand jury report in about the Catholic church in Pennsylvania came out suggesting that the Catholic church had just sort of, you know, passed people around yeah. the Olympic gymnastics doctor thinking about uh. so, so when I talk about all those examples, here's the commonality. I believe that most people are good. But the problem is if good people don't do anything in the face of bad behavior, mm -hmm. then really bad things happen. And although the book is called Why We Act, this is what I wanted to call it, which I now, <laughs> my, my publishers probably wish they had just let me call it that so I wouldn't keep bringing it up. But the book, what I wanted to call the book and I lost on was The Appalling Silence of the Good People. Mm -hmm. um, which is a famous, of course, Martin Luther King Jr. quote mm -hmm. um, about the silence of the good people. And so, so my book is basically about the silent good people. Why mm -hmm. are many, many people good and silent in lots of different situations? How do we understand the psychology of that? And then what can we use in terms of tools to step up and do something different, to become, as I described, turning people from a bystander into a moral rebel. So that's a long answer um, to what my most recent <laughs> book is about. So, so uh, for those who haven't read the book, uh, can you give us an idea of what, what the answer is, why people don't act? I, I know that, that, that's, that's the book, yeah. but can you give us an idea of yeah. Oh, no. I mean, there, to be honest, there's three things. And I and I do talks about this all the time. And I ask people, you know, which of these three and everybody's like, oh, yeah, it's, a, you know, whatever. So one, you don't really know what's going on. So you hear or say something, you know, whatever. And you're like, is that like, is that just flirting? Or is that like sexual mm -hmm. harassment? You know, mm -hmm. is that a funny joke? Or is that racist? Um, is that person just 
like unconscious, like just drunk or are they unconscious? So mm-hmm. one thing is that overwhelmingly we don't, um, we don't know what's going on. And Jesse Matthews, yeah, I talk about Kitty Genovese exactly in the book, chapter four. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One, we don't know what's going on. It's like ambiguous. Right. Um, two, um, we know what's going on. We know it's horrible, but, and this is actually the Kitty Genovese example, we're in a group of people. And so we're like, this is really bad, but you know what? You could do something or you or you or you. It doesn't have to be me. So right. the second is group setting and diffusion of responsibility and the Kitty Genovese bystander effect. Third thing is we worry about the consequences. Yep. Um, yep. I'm going to get fired if I, you know, call out my boss, you know, for yep. what they did. I'm going to get ostracized by my fraternity brothers if I call 911. Um, I'm not going to be, you know, included in family gatherings if I call out my homophobic, you know, great uncle or, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, so, so, so those are the three. We don't really know what's going on. It's ambiguous. Um, we, we feel not responsible in a group. Um, mm-hmm. or we worry about the consequences. And in almost all cases, people can pinpoint it's one of those. One of those. Two of yep. those. Yeah. But that's why. So, okay. Now, if, if, if we're putting this into the terms um, if we put this into the terms of uh, the last year, you know, of, of things that we've seen and all of that, um, how do you how do you take how do people join in as individuals to take responsibility to become moral actors rather than I mean, because uh, realistically, there are going to be consequences in some of these cases. Uh, realistically, there are going to be issues. You, uh, Someone else could have done it, you, you know, so. What's the answer? Yeah, well, so so wonderful question. So first of all, understanding the psychology that leads us to not step up is actually very helpful because once you're once you think, oh well, other people are not stepping up, um, that's actually helpful in and of itself because we often feel, oh, it's just me. I'm the only one. I'm the only one. You know, whatever. And so, so first, understanding that other people may also feel exactly like you do is, uh-huh. is in and of itself helpful in terms of empowering people to speak up. Yeah. Um, I, I describe it in the book a student who is very good student, um, senior on the basketball team. And he was in my office one day a couple years ago and he said, you know, it's interesting. Every day in the locker room, someone says something offensive. And sometimes I speak up, but sometimes I don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I wondered is, I bet everybody else in the locker room is also like, that's offensive. But each of them is kind of thinking, oh, I, you know, nobody else, it's just me. So so first, I think understanding that it's very normal to feel like this is, is really empowering. So that's first. Yeah. Um, second, I think we actually need to remember that many times if we don't speak up, it haunts us. Um, Chris yes. has just said, do what is right and not what is easy. And 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 honestly, I love that. That could have been the title of the book. But um, uh, <laughs> right. often when people um, don't step up, they it haunts them. And and so they they think about it. When I've been doing, you know, um, journalist interviews and podcasts or whatever, often, you know, we'll go off the air right before we start and the person will be like, hey, I just have to tell you something. And then they will describe something. And sometimes it's like 30 years ago, 40 yep. years ago, and they'll be like, yep. Oh my God, I still remember. And so, so I think it's really important to recognize that it can not doing something does feel easy in the moment, but it often sticks with us and feels really bad. And then the other thing I think is that frankly, for those of us in a power position, we have a responsibility to speak up because we don't have to worry about the consequences. So a few years ago, um, there was somebody in my office, a faculty member who was blatantly stealing from the college, blatantly stealing. And my administrative assistant caught him, like, because uh-huh. she does the books and the budget. And so she recognized uh-huh. Uh-huh. And she tried to report it, and he got very angry. And she does not have tenure. And she 100% right. got fired. So she came to me, and I was like, well, I'll just go. I'll get, it's hard to fire me. And I went, and I took it up, and I took it up, and I kept escalating it, and, and the situation got resolved. But I could do that because I was not going to face the consequences. Yeah. She could have. Yeah. Um, but so I think part of it is that if you're in a situation where you're not in trouble, you're not at risk of you know losing your job or you know getting fired or something, you actually have a moral responsibility. And so sometimes that means that the person who notices it needs to find an ally, right? Needs to find somebody who can go yeah. to talk to them. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's also important to recognize. So it's not a one size fits all solution, but we right. have options. I, I I hadn't considered the last one that you mentioned about 
finding those allies, uh, just because, I mean, uh, I think most of us ID with being in this situation where uh, we're on the same level as everyone else. So yeah, there's going to be a situation where we're going to get fired or we're going to be ostracized, what have you. That being said, what's, what, I don't know if many companies have this built in uh, beyond, well, you can go to HR, but that doesn't feel like the same thing as having an advocate for you or something like that. So are, do you know of programs or is there a way to build this into, like, let's say a company culture? Yeah, there there absolutely is. And I talk about some companies that have done this a little bit in chapter eight, but one of the best examples, and this is something that I actually feel super fortunate about. I have been asked um, to join a board and I'm, I'm now a member of the board and the board is called Active Bystandership in Law Enforcement. ABLE is the acronym and it's run out of Georgetown University Law School. Mm-hmm. And here's what this group does. They go into police departments across the country. And they basically teach them about psychology. Mm-hmm. And what they're doing is they're trying to get officers to stop bad behavior on the part of their colleagues. Uh-huh. And, and so to me, it's, it's a brilliant program because what it's doing is it's not saying to officers, be the whistleblower, be the snitch or, you know, whatever. Yep. It's, it's switching. What is being loyal in a police department? It's not overlooking fraudulent, dishonest, uh-huh abusive mm-hmm. behavior. It's stepping up and helping your colleagues do the right thing, mm-hmm. helping stop situations before they escalate. And honestly, um, to me, that's the kind of program that you need. You need to have a program in which we switch, that it's not, you're the snitch, you're the, you know, whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera, that, that will we change the culture. So the culture is one in which we're trying, in which loyalty is about loyalty to the community, loyalty to the people, loyalty to your colleagues means loyalty, preventing them from getting themselves in trouble, right? Preventing themselves. I mean, honestly, um, I wrote an op-ed in, um, it was published in June in USA Today. It was co-written with Cornell Brooks, who's the former president of the NAACP. Mm -hmm. And what Cornell and I describe is that in the case of George Floyd's death, if the officers with the man who kneeled on George Floyd's neck for nearly nine minutes, if, if his colleagues, three, three were there, they had pulled him off. Mm-hmm. George Floyd is alive and you and I don't know who he is. Mm-hmm. Right? We don't know who he is. It's nothing. It's nothing. Because his, his colleagues step up and do the right thing. And so to me, that's the point of trying to change cultures. And now that's maybe an extreme workplace example. You know, many of us don't work in police departments or whatever. Yeah. But that same kind of culture... Can yeah, work in all yeah. different kinds of places, even if it's not a life or death, you know, yeah. situation. I, I love that. Now, when you told me about the program, I thought this this may actually have some legs to it because, uh, specifically in law enforcement, because it is such a brotherhood and it is such a, you know, uh, a close knit sort of thing. And and telling on someone can be get it can get you ostracized. There's a lot of things that can happen from it. So I, I thought that was such a, a great example of things that we can do. So I, I want to shift the focus a little bit toward you, because one of the things that um, I think that it's easy for us to see is ourselves in the situations of, of uh, how we feel about George Floyd or how we feel about uh, any of these cases, honestly any of these cases where we can step up and we can do something. What I, what I want to do though, is focus on how, what kind of person writes the book <laughs> about these things. So obviously um, for you, there has to be some sort of push or something that says, um, I was writing about positive psychology before. Um, it, it feels lighter. And I mean, granted it's a lot to it, but it feels lighter than um, some of the things that are life or death. What pushes you to write this book instead of another book about positive psychology or anything else for that matter? Yeah, I will say it was a very um, it was a very jarring shift. And and with the publication lag time, my book, The Positive Shift, had come out. I was doing like, you know, press for it. And 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 I was working on this other book, like, you know, at the same time writing it. And so yeah. I was like doing these interviews on like happy and positive and you know, <laughs> and then I would go and read about like 
Nazi Germany and mm-hmm. like civil rights movement and, you know, mm-hmm. whatever, like, mm-hmm. amazing deaths. And so, yeah, you know, the commonality for me, Kelly, in both of these books is I want to make a difference. So you're making a difference very practically in your coaching. Like you're actually, you know, providing practical, personal and professional success for people. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm not a therapist. I am not a therapist. I'm not trained to be a therapist. Um, And so to me, writing these books is my way of, of, of trying to give people tools that can make the world better. And so I wrote The Positive Shift, hoping it would help people live happier and healthier lives, which Mm -hmm. is good for all of us. I wrote Why We Act, hoping that it would spawn moral rebels, that Mm -hmm. it would help people speak up. Because here's the thing, if it was my son drunk, unconscious in a dorm room, I would really like a kid to stand up and call 911. Yeah. And, you know, and, and so to me, I am hoping that it gives people tools and strategies they can use to step up. And that to me is the common feature. Hmm. Um, so, so I guess I want to, I want to push a little bit on this uh, and really kind of get in a little bit. So um, obviously you have a, uh, uh, you have a conscience in there. You have this moral thing that impels you from the inside that says, go and do this thing. Where does that come from? <laughs> well, you know, Kelly, when you and I spoke a few weeks ago, you know, I think we, we both had a big chuckle because I said, I can't even remember what question you asked me, but I remember <laughs> at some point I said, maybe you know what I'm going to say now. And I mm-hmm. said, I don't really care if people like me. And then you started laughing. <laughs> you said, what did you say, Kelly? Uh, I don't know, probably something along the lines of that is rare uh, because and, and also that you, is. And also you though. And, oh, it also, yeah. and it also describes you. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm pretty okay with that though. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, but here's the thing. Like, I think there are lots of people that are really like, really, you know, mm-hmm. that would be terrible. And so part of it for me is that, you know, and I, and I, and I talk about this sort of, I'm trying to separate myself from the book now, but, but <laughs> I, what I talk about in chapter nine, who are these moral rebels? And so what do we know about moral rebels? What do we know about these people? Number mm-hmm. one, they tend to be super high in empathy. So they're really able to put themselves in somebody else's shoes. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Two, they don't really care about not being liked. So they're, you know, they're like, all right, people don't like me. Oh, well, there are a lot of other people, you know, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Whereas for other people, that feels like painful and kind of awful. And mm-hmm, then three, mm-hmm. and, and this is the parent of a um, really argumentative 16-year-old daughter. This gives me a lot of hope. Um, they tend to be good at arguing. <laughs> So they tend to be people who are pretty good at arguing and kind of standing up for what they believe in. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a colleague um, who I've worked with for, you know, probably about 20 years now. And and at one point he sent me an email that was literally, I think, the nicest email that I've ever received. And, and, he, and he wasn't even meaning it to be nice, but he just mm-hmm. said, what I think about you, Catherine, is that you always try to figure out what the right thing to do is, and then you try to do it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, so I was like, yes, that is, <laughs> that is what I'm like. And it's like one of these things where whoever, I can't remember who wrote the, the, the comment, um, whoever it was should write it again, but that in sometimes it's, sometimes there are easier things, right? Sometimes it's just easier to kind of be like, I'm going to look at oh, yeah. I'm going to, yeah, I'm just going to not really think about that or whatever. And um, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Chris. Do what is right and not what is easy. And and mm-hmm. here's the thing. I think lots of people try to figure out, you know, it's easier often not to rock the boat, right? Yeah. It's yeah. easier just, just to shut up. It's easier to look the other way. It's easier to be like, okay, well, it's not me or it's not so bad or it's not whatever. And, mm-hmm. and the thing is that if everyone does that, we live in a really crappy world, yep. right? We live in a really crappy world. And so, so to me, um, you, you know, I, I am pretty much fine with not being liked. And, and I'm really hoping that um, I'm really hoping that we can all live in a world in which more people do what is right, not what is easy. Um, and actually, I also think I'm going to go one step further than Chris. I think that if we live in a world in which more people do what is right, it will be also easier. 
right? It will be easy. Yeah. It will become easier because if if doing what's right is not like weird and abnormal, yep. like the yep. whistleblower and the snitch and the tattletale, but like being doing what's right is like, oh yeah, well, we all do what's right. Well, that's what we do in this police department or in this law firm or this, you know, whatever church, whatever it is, mm-hmm. it, the mm-hmm. life is going to be easier, right? For all of us. It, it, it's like you read my mind here because that is a great segue into what's next. What does it look like? And, and, I'm going to ask you for the, the the big portion of this as a as a world as a society how do you normalize that sort of behavior because obviously that that's where that's where the the stop gap the stop gap is that's where the the issue is how do you normalize uh doing the harder thing yeah so um i so i've been giving a talk on this topic for probably about 18 months like before the book came out i was talking about this and mm-hmm. when i would talk to you know big public audiences here's the number one comment people would say at the end this should be required for every student before they go to college or this right. should be required for every high school student and i actually had the opportunity last week um i did an event for a school in new jersey a virtual event of course but um mm-hmm. and and i did it one night for parents and teachers and then I did it the next morning for high school students. And then I did it the next morning for middle school students, which which did require kind of like shifting, you yeah. know, some of yeah. the examples, you know, and so on. But but this is what I'm gonna say. I honestly think that the more we can talk about it to teenagers, because if you can get these skills, if you can get these skills when you're 15 or 18 mm-hmm. or 12, the, they're gonna, it's going to stay with you, right? I mean, it's going to stay with you. It's not like, it's like, you know, adopting any kind of a healthy habit, you know, whether it's reading or exercising or, you know, whatever. Um, and so to me, if we can talk about these things with children, with teenagers, you know, in high schools, it's going to pay off because the moral rebels who stop, you know, bad conduct on the school bus or in the locker room, they're going to be the people also who do the right thing in in the fraternity house or, you know, on their athletic team. They're going to be the right people who call out bad behavior in their office or their police department or their law firm or their PTA meeting or, you know, whatever. And so to me, talking about it and changing the culture is what's really important. And, you know, there's lots of evidence that cultural norms change. Um, yeah. I, I don't know uh, how old people are who are listening to this, but um, you know, many of us grew up and like you, you never wore a helmet while bicycling. Uh, <laughs> yes. You bought a seat on an airplane that was in the smoking or non-smoking, yep. um, right? I mean, you know, Emily is saying is saying that. Um, I remember thinking like, well, the safest place for a baby in the car is oh, hold the yeah. baby. You know, then you're keeping them, and like now that's like child abuse. I mean, you know, that's yeah. <laughs> those are examples of things that that you know we can see culture changing. I mean, mm-hmm. in all honesty, I end the book um, by talking about you know, what I think is one of the most profound differences in terms of cultural change, and that is the legalization of gay marriage. That when I was in high school, the idea that, well, you could have a same-sex marriage, like that just seemed like impossible, that that would ever become legal. And now it's legal and it's been legal. And that's an example of the culture shift that we Mm -hmm. have experienced. And so to me, I think those are all examples of things that seem impossible and then become possible. Now, let me ask you this, uh, because one of the things that I think is interesting, Thurston brings this up. He says, uh, if it holds and they don't change later. So from from your work, from your experience, what do you say to that? So, so what I think is that it doesn't take everyone. It takes okay. a tipping point. And so sometimes people say to me, and it's often phrased as, um, I don't know if it's just convenient, but it's often phrased as like a great uncle. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's just, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to throw my great uncle under the bus, but it's often phrased that way. And and people say, I mean, he says things that are offensive, but I know mm-hmm. I'm not going to mm-hmm. change him. I know I'm not going to change him. He's, you know, really old, blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. If, if your great uncle speaks up and you don't do anything, you, you don't say anything, even if you're not going to change him, you not speaking up and calling out that behavior also means mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you're not calling out that behavior for anyone else who's listening, your yeah. children, your sister, your, you know, whoever yeah. it is. And so, yeah, everybody is not going to change. But if enough people have this shift, that will actually lead to a change in norms. More other people, yeah. Exactly. And so th- then it becomes normal. So what do we know? So if you look at, for example, um, 
sexual misconduct in fraternities and athletic teams, which mm-hmm. we've all heard mm-hmm. about happening. Yeah. There are a tiny percentage of men who are engaging in a bad behavior. A tiny percentage. Yeah. It's not men in fraternities are all rapists or whatever. It's a tiny percentage. The problem is that percentage is like, everyone thinks what I'm doing is awesome. And, right. and, and, <laughs> and, and many of the men around them are like, I think it's bad. I think it's bad, but I don't. And so that's an example is that there are many cases in which lots of people think this is bad, but nobody says anything. And so part of the issue is that understanding that other people, in fact, you know, think the same is is really important. And that example, I I, I didn't see who said it, but the but the neurosis yeah. example, absolutely, absolutely, we know that we can change patterns of the brain. Um, and it, again, it takes practice, but but we can have a cultural shift in which things do change um, if, mm-hmm. if we can get enough of the people to that tipping point. That I I. I... Yeah, all of this is fascinating because I, I, I like the idea of uh, kind of like we were talking about with the positive psychology. I love the empowerment uh, point of view. I, I love the idea of believing that we can change, we can be better, uh, because in all honesty, that's where all the hope is. So uh, tell me what it looks like um, in a society where, where those are the norms. Uh, tell me what it looks like in a in a in an average business or in an average school. What does that What does that look like? Yeah, I love that question. It's like that's such a hopeful question, right? I mean, so it looks like an environment in which good behavior is the norm, in which people are respected, in which people feel empathy for each other, um, and and I think there's also the assumption of goodwill. So yeah. I, one of the things, one of the points that I make, you know, repeatedly is that. Calling out bad behavior doesn't have to be saying, you know, you're stupid, you know, or mm-hmm. you're sexist, or you're racist, or you're a bad person, or you're evil. It can be saying, you know, I am I am sure that you didn't intend to mean that to be offensive. But, yeah. Or like I I I know that you were probably just being sarcastic, or I know that you were just kind of joking. But and so part <laughs> of it is that giving yeah. you the tools to say, you, you know you don't mean, you don't know what you're saying and why that would be offensive. Mm-hmm. And so, and part of it is then, you know, owning it and owning it and saying, you know, like, yeah, you know, I used to actually make the same assumption and then I learned, you know, or that. And so part of it is that giving people the tools that don't require mm-hmm. telling somebody else they're a lousy person or they're stupid or, you know, you know, a bad person is really important. That I think many of us just need tools to be able to say, and, and also to have the understanding that, Many people are experiencing the same thing. Um, I I describe, you know, one of my favorite studies in the book about um, being in a class in which the professor says, do you have any questions? And you have a question. But when you go to raise your hand, you look around and no one else in the room is raising their hand. And so what do you think? You think, well, I don't want to ask the question because it just must be me. And I'm the one to feel like the dummy. I don't want to feel like the dummy. (laughs) But here's what's fascinating. You're not raising your hand because you don't want to feel like a dummy. You look around at everybody else and you're not thinking they don't want to be the dummy. You're thinking what? Everybody else is smarter than I am. Everybody else is smarter. They all get it. Yeah. And here's the thing. When you tell students that, they all laugh because they're like, oh, yeah, that's right. And so here's the thing. We all look the same, not raising our hands. But we assume that our behavior is being driven by something other different from other people's behavior. Having that sort of understanding that actually has lots of impact beyond the classroom. So you're sitting in the locker room and somebody says something offensive. It might be that everyone thinks that. I remember times in which I've spoken up in a meeting and I've said something. And afterwards, a bunch of people have come up and been like, I'm so glad you said that. I was thinking the same thing. You know, but they didn't want to speak up. And so again, yeah. understanding yeah. the sort of normal human reaction to want to fit in, to want to be part of the group, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, in and of itself, that's a really important understanding. What what I what I think is is really good about this is uh, I love you giving us uh, sort of some tips and and some ways to kind of approach it um, and and honestly I would love to see a society like that um, I I think what I'm going to have to do is now to start a campaign to get you like on a on a tour or at least a virtual tour of, of all of these middle schools <laughs> they kind of get that started. Um, so okay, before we're we're coming up against the hour, before we hop off, I do want to make sure that 
uh, people know one where to reach you because I did see something on your site. Uh, sounds like you were doing book clubs and uh, oh, wait, are, are you still doing that one? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, the, the good thing about the pandemic is I never leave my house and I never put on pants. So, you know, <laughs> there we go. Yeah, this is a great world. This is a great world. So let me pop this up here. Alrighty. So, uh, yeah, you yeah. guys, uh, you can see uh, Catherine's books. They are on this site. Uh, they are in the comments. And actually, I'm going to throw that back in the comments just to make sure that everyone can see it. And uh, to uh, because there are also cases where you're doing virtual uh, speaking engagement, things like that, um, you can actually reach Dr. Sanderson right through the form on this site. So, uh, Catherine, I, I, uh, before we hop off, I want to I want to get your closing thoughts, your closing ideas. Um, t t tell our guest, I mean, tell our audience uh, anything else maybe they should know uh, about you, about where you're going, about. Uh, anything that you feel like would even be helpful? Well, well, first of all, Callie, I have to say thank you so much for this invitation to talk. Um, it was clear yeah, when I connected a month ago that we could talk for you know a couple hours, yep. you know, yep. just <laughs> to ourselves, and we we're like, oh wait, we should kind of wait until like yeah. the other people listen <laughs> too, right? Um, right? Anyway, so so thank you for for reaching out, and I'm sorry to be such an idiot sitting around in Microsoft Gosh. waiting for you to let me into the meeting because uh, that was what was on my Google Calendar. So anyway, I, I must super happy to that you're there. I must accepted it as like a guest, you know, waiting. I wonder who the guest is. Anyway, um, but. <laughs> but what I want to say is that, you know, to me, um, the, the whole point of my writing and my talking and my teaching, mm -hmm. try to give people tools they can use. And that's it. You mm -hmm. know, that, that this is my way of trying to give people tools they can use. And um, if, if anyone um, has a question for me that you didn't have a chance to answer, it's completely fine to reach out to me. There's a form, as, as Kelly just put up on the website. Um, you can reach out to me. And certainly... I think talking about this with our friends, neighbors, family members, children, et cetera, talking about the psychology underlying inaction mm -hmm. helps give people an understanding into the very normal experience that we all have of seeing something. Um, when I do one of my talks, um, yeah. which, which you can also um, see a version of on my website, you know, for free, mm -hmm. you can watch mm -hmm. that. But I, I do something in the first five minutes or so, and this is what I do. It's like a, a poll, a Zoom poll. And I say, who here has ever seen or heard something problematic and failed to speak up? Yep. And I get, and, and this is this is with lawyers, this is with high school students, this is with teachers, this is with community members. 80 to 95% of people say yes. Wow. 80 to 95% of people say yes. And so the reality is we all are hearing and seeing things all the time that are problematic. And being aware of why we don't speak up and developing strategies for speaking up can help the world be better for all of us. Um, I, I, you're right. I think we could just talk for a couple of hours doing this. Um, I, I, I don't want to hold you longer, though, uh, because we'd have to do a second hour of the show. Um, so you guys, obviously, uh, Dr. Sanderson has some beautiful concepts and ideas and, and obviously reach out to her uh, if you have questions like she mentioned. Uh, <laughs> uh, Catherine, if you can hold on for one second, I'm going to talk to you backstage. I'm just going to play us out with my cheesy intro. I'm sorry, my cheesy outro. And uh, just hold on for one moment.